Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Um, So you guys know this. I'm kind of a voracious consumer of of the news. Um, It's not just that I like to know what's what's happening out there. I like to be prepared to have meaningful conversations with people I encounter. And not everybody is interested in the same thing or paying attention to the same thing. And so I like to um, read across a range of subject matter areas. And obviously we can't talk about all of it. But sometimes something, you know, leaps off the page at me or leaps over the radio at me. And I think, you know, I'm going to mark that down and I'm going to talk with my friend about that when we get together on Mornings with Carmen. So uh, I hope you have grabbed um, whatever warm beverage uh, is your preferred one in the morning. Maybe you have a sweet and spicy tea in hand right now. Uh, maybe you have a good cup of coffee. Uh, maybe you've got hot, hot cider or hot chocolate. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm a fan of all of these. <clears throat> so. Um, when some group of people starts chanting death uh, to another group of people, um, I think we as Christians need to pay attention. And when what they're chanting is death to your country, uh, you definitely ought to pay attention. So when citizens in Iraq started chanting again, this is not new, death to America, Um, But when they started chanting death to America um, and the numbers continued to grow and grow and grow um, and U.S. service personnel stationed in in Iraq are now under threat of being disgorged from um, from that particular country. Like, I think we ought to pay attention. So. There are a lot of people in the nation of Iraq calling Uh, calling out death to America in response to a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad that killed Iranian-backed militia uh, members, those responsible for the deaths of U.S. service members um, in a a drone strike that originated um, uh, by Iran-backed Rebels. It's a, such a complicated mess, right? <clears throat> Who actually made the drone that killed the U.S. service members? Well, Iran made the drone. Who shot the drone? Iranian-backed militias, but not based in Iran. Um, these leaders of that Iranian-backed group, um, which is a, ver- a version of Hezbollah, um, were living in Baghdad or had gone to Baghdad thinking, well, that would be a safe place to hide out while, you know, tempers cool. Um, and so via a U.S. drone strike, these individuals were killed. And the language being used here in the United States related to it um, is um, so, like, tepid. <laughs> like, 
you know, the, these these people were killed by a drone strike and let's move on to the next headline. Um, that's not the way it's being reported around the world. In India, um, the claims are that America is raining down hellfire on her enemies and she's doing so with wrath. These are this is these are the words. And when we think about what we hear or what we read or what we consume in terms of news and what the rest of the world is consuming in terms of news about us, it's important. Like what people are saying about us matters. So think about those words for just a moment. America is raining down, quote, hellfire on her enemies. The word enemies is important. The word hellfire is important. The word wrath that comes a sentence later is important. Um, here in America, you read things like this. Following the blast, great tension arose, and there is anger toward America. Yeah, people are literally in the street burning us in effigy and burning our flag and chanting uh, death to America and likening us to the great Satan. Um, it might be a little more than rising tension uh, and um, anger. <clears throat> and so I want, you, I want you to just go back in your own memory bank um, and try to remember what it felt like, what it felt like when people crossed our border and took the lives of Americans. I'm thinking here of the collapse of the two World Trade Centers and the surrounding buildings on, on 9-11. I want, you to, I want you to try to go back and recover what you felt about the people who did that. Because that's how people feel when U.S. drones cross international borders to take people out. Um, now, the next story that caught my attention yesterday, <clears throat> this will not surprise you. Every, every county in America and every state in the nation has a drug overdose surveillance system. That does not surprise you, right? We, we keep track of the people who, who die um, because they overdose on, on drugs. Like, we keep track of that. But there's no national network of that information until now. The, the um, San Francisco Chronicle, this is one of those times when you point to the power of big media. Um, so the San Francisco Chronicle is the second largest newspaper in the state of California. And like all journalism, it's under threat of, of extinction. But they have um, used their resources and their, um, and their staff to build a, uh, a massive um, site, I'm going to call it that, where you can go and you can put in the name of your county and you can get, it's, it's updated every month, month to month, um, updated information about overdose deaths where you live. Up until now, the average person um, would have a really hard time finding that information. And the numbers are staggering. And it may not be your county that has staggering numbers, but for me, where I live, it's the county next door. Like, I'm like, whoa, that, I mean, I'm in there, I'm in that county a lot. Like, I'm in that county to go grocery shopping. I'm in that county, I'm in that county a lot. And their numbers are staggering. Um, overdose deaths, particularly related to fentanyl. And so, you know, it reminded me of the conversations that we've had about deaths of despair. It reminded me about the conversations we've had about unrecovery with George A. Wood. It, re it reminded me of several conversations that we've had um, about what's happening um, in terms of loneliness and the things to which people are turning. And so, 
If you're lonely, um, we do not want you to slip into despair. We want you to be recovered. And so I'm going to invite you to text the word lonely to 877-933-2484. I have recorded a series of messages. They will, um, you know, they'll, they'll come out to you, you know, every couple of days for a month to encourage you, to remind you that even if you feel lonely, you're not alone. God is with you and God is for you. And so are we. So are we. Um, our friend and brother Adam Holtz is going to join us next from Focus on the Family's Plugged In. Have you seen The Chosen season four? Um, hey, we actually have some tickets to give away. Um, if you want to see The Chosen season four movie in theaters, we've got some tickets to give away. You can go to MyFaithRadio.com um, and, uh, and check that out. There's a place to register there to win a couple of tickets. We really want to encourage you to take somebody um, who doesn't know Jesus um, or may misunderstand who Jesus is. Um, but anyway, that's available at MyFaithRadio.com as well. Adam Holtz joins us next. Adam Holtz is here from Focus on the Family's Plugged In. Okay, neither Adam nor I have seen the movie yet. So, so spoiler alert, we are we are not going to... Oh, he saw it? I was going to say, no, I saw we the are movie. not going to spoil it. I didn't see it. the live stream. Oh. oh, you saw the movie. You didn't see the live stream last night where they were talking about Correct. the end of the movie. Okay, well then you can... Then you can at least brief us in on what is so apparently controversial about the end of the movie. I mean, you know, it is going to be a spoiler alert here. Um, So, um, yeah. Go ahead, Adam. What happens at the end of the movie? I will simply say I'm going to give a partial spoiler uh, Mm. because I don't want to wreck the details. Somebody dies. Somebody dies. uh, And it's a character that is a surprise. It is a character that is uh, it's not, you know, a biblical character. Obviously, if you're watching the show, you know that Dallas Jenkins and his crew have woven together, I think, a very plausible and a compelling sort of what might the disciples' lives have actually been like. You know, there's a fleshing out of the biblical narrative in an imaginative way. And and some people, for some people, that's going to be an automatic, you know, well, that's not in the Bible. This thing that happens is not in the Bible, but it's plausible. And I will say that somebody dies violently in a way that I think illustrates um, the cost and the risk of following Jesus. Like, I think it it makes the story very poignant. Um, it also felt like the biggest moment in the four seasons so far for me, where the primary narrative focus was on something that didn't actually happen in scripture. And so I'm sure that there'll be people who say, I can't believe they killed this character. And I think there'll be others who say, I can't believe that the story at this point feels less about Jesus and more about something that didn't actually take place in scripture. But I think that the, the circumstances again, still felt uh, very plausible. And, and I think it's true to the idea that, um, following Jesus is risky and everybody wants Jesus to, you know, raise this character from the dead hmm. and Jesus doesn't. And so I think it again begs the question, you know, there are moments where Jesus chooses to heal and chooses to do supernatural things. 
And there are other places where that doesn't happen. And that, again, uh, that's still true today. You know, we probably know or have heard stories of people who have been miraculously delivered from something and others who have prayed for miraculous deliverance right up to the end of a terminal diagnosis. And that hasn't happened. So again, I don't think there's anything theologically problematic here, but I do think it shifts the narrative feel of the overall story, maybe in a way that we haven't seen so far. Um, So the cost of discipleship is real. Death in Jesus's day was a daily reality. I mean, I think part of um, part of the conversation that we could have as Christians with other people is just to ask the question, how many crucifixions do you think took place under the Roman occupation of Israel um, yeah. in the days of Jesus's ministry? Because people were well, being crucified every day. Can I weigh in on that? There was a movie that came out in 2017 called The Young Messiah, and it was based on Anne Rice. Yes, that Anne Rice, the vampire author, it was based on her book, Christ the Lord, which Anne Rice was Catholic, rejected Catholicism, had a moment where she really came back and was in an Orthodox place and I think has drifted away from that again, um, in part because I think she has a gay son who has not been treated very well by the church. Anyway, this movie imagines what Jesus, you know, moving, going to Egypt might have been like as a child. Uh, I think there is some stuff from the apocryphal gospel of Thomas here. Um, But again, there wasn't anything terribly unorthodox in this, although we could have a conversation about that. Anyway, I digress. There's a scene in which Jesus and Joseph and Mary are traveling on a road and the road is lined with crosses of people who have been crucified for as far as the eye can see, hundreds of them, and that most of them are moaning in agony as they, you know, as they die on their crosses. And to me, that scene absolutely rammed home that Jesus' own crucifixion on the cross was not, it wasn't a one-off, you know, it wasn't some aberrant thing. This was what the Romans used to enforce their rule and the threat of you know, this crucifixion and execution in the worst possible way, everybody would have been familiar with that. Yeah. um, I mean, I think it was like uh, 71 years before the birth of Christ when like 6,000 people were crucified in one day. Like it's a, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible um, mechanism of, um, of death. And it was widely used in, um, in the ancient world by the by the Romans in particular. Um, yep. But again, we, we do digress. There, Somebody dies um, at the yes. end of the movie. If you choose to go see the, the Chosen um, movie in theaters, it is the first few episodes of season four put together as a movie. Is that accurate? Yep, that's okay. right. And then the next three episodes will be out, I believe, next Thursday or Friday. And they'll run in theaters for two weeks. And then the last two episodes are the first two weeks in March. Okay. So um, somebody on the text line saying, uh, you know, yeah, I love The Chosen, but I did hate the ending of this movie. It felt like a shift in the narrative to me. Um, And so, you know, I guess as we enter into the season of Lent this coming Wednesday, just think about the shift in the narrative. Think about the shift in the narrative that takes place when Jesus sets his eyes toward Jerusalem. Think about the shift in the narrative that takes place 
um, between the the portion of each gospel that leads up to what we think of as Jesus literally like Flint setting him setting his eyes on the cross and moving in that direction. Um, the narrative does shift, and it shifts toward um, the reality of the cost of um, of coming and be- coming and becoming the Messiah. Uh, and so maybe I'm not surprised that um, the chosen is going to get harder and harder to watch. I mean, we know where this, you know, we know the the climax of all of this, right, right. people? I mean, you do you do know where this is headed, right? You you are aware that the cross is is coming. Um, uh, this weekend, the Super Bowl is coming. When we come back from a very brief break, we're going to talk about an ad buy by a group of Christians. The ad campaign is called He Gets Us. Oh, yes, I remember there's controversy related to this, but I want to talk about the fact that people way outside Christian circles are talking about Christians buying ads in the Super Bowl. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is your birthday song. It isn't very long. Hey, Faith Radio is celebrating 75 years of bringing faith to life. That's right. We are 75 this year. So to celebrate, we are giving away 75 Faith Radio birthday boxes packed with all kinds of fun things to help you grow in your walk of faith. And yes, celebrate with us. So we're going to be celebrating the birth and growth and future of Faith Radio all year long. And you are an integral part of the Faith Radio family. And so we want to send you a gift. How fun is that? This is our birthday song. It isn't very long. So to enter to win a Faith Radio birthday box today, come to MyFaithRadio.com. All right. uh, Are you going to watch the Super Bowl? Do you have a Super Bowl watch party plan? Maybe you're participating in a Super Bowl of caring this weekend as a ministry outreach related to the Super Bowl. Um, We have been talking with Jason Romano from Sports Spectrum about all of the Christians on the field, off the field, um, around the field, doing ministry in Vegas this week. Uh, And so if you missed that conversation, you can go back and listen, myfaithradio.com or on the Faith Radio app. Um, Adam, the He Gets Us campaign uh, has bought some very expensive airtime during the Super Bowl. Um, Yep. You know, nobody raises concern when, like, you know, a beer company buys ad time. Um, why are people all exercised that these Christians have bought this airtime during the Super Bowl? Well, uh, to me, it just it illustrates the fundamental reality that Jesus said that he would be a divisive force. And <laughs> even when we have ads that talk about the fact that Jesus knows us and understands us and um, connects with us right where we are, even that message uh, can be problematic. Now, I'm being a, a little bit, I'm dissembling just a little tiny bit here. What they're, what people are frustrated with is not necessarily the ads themselves, but the fact that they're being at least partially funded by, uh, you know, the founder of Hobby Lobby. Um, And, you know, he is a conservative and Hobby Mm -hmm. Lobby has really stood its ground in the culture wars with regard to funding birth control, with regard to, you know, unisex bathrooms, those sorts of things. And so you've got people online basically saying, yeah, this is total hypocrisy because clearly the people funding the commercial don't get us. And I'm like, okay. 
um, they're they're basically saying this is an evangelical with an agenda, and it's like, oh man, it feels like a lot of frothing at the mouth that actually gets fairly far astray from what the commercials themselves are about. Um, but I think that it gets at the core of what Jesus confronts, right? Jesus confronts our self-focus. Um, you know, was it Bonhoeffer that says when Jesus bids a man to come and follow him, he bids him to come and die. And the area of sexuality is ground zero for self, uh, for identity, for understanding meaning. Um, and Jesus had things to say about sexuality. Um, and scripture has things to say about its purpose and its place in our lives. So I suppose it's not a surprise. I hope actually that the hubbub and the hyperventilating over this actually earns it more eyeballs and more attention that it might have anyway. But each time I see one of these ads, I think, man, these ads are really well done. They're very winsome. Yeah. Um, so they they started this particular ad campaign um, during the NFL playoffs. So there's there's a good chance you've right. already seen um, a he yep. gets us ad during the playoffs. Um, and, you know, and I don't know, you know, in terms of like bang for buck, I don't actually know how the math works out. But during the playoffs, their ads generated one hundred and six one hundred and sixty six million impressions. Like that's yep. how many people um and it's not just eyeballs on their ad. That's people, you know, actually doing something to let them know, hey, I've seen you. That's that's pretty yeah. huge. Um, no, hey, huge. Bef- before we jump, um, before we jump off here, I guess I'm wondering um, um, if we can talk about this ongoing need for us to be vetting kids entertainment and yeah. for us to be continually engaged in the conversation with our kids about what they're watching and what they're doing um, online. Uh, Vetting kids entertainment isn't a one and done. Now we're talking about a focus on the family podcast. Yeah, we are. And we're actually talking about an article that Brett McCracken wrote uh, for the gospel coalition as well. And he basically makes the point and we talk about this very subject this week on the plugged in show. How do you navigate kids entertainment And the one and done part is incredibly important here because once upon a time, maybe you could have watched one episode of something of a kid's show. Maybe it's an animated show. Maybe it's live action. Maybe it's on Cartoon Network or Nickelodeon or Disney Plus. And you may have gotten a sense of what to expect. The problem is virtually all of these shows being created by the mainstream. It's now just a question of time where we're going to get LGBT representation somewhere in that show. Like that's almost the only thing I am looking for these days when I'm looking at kids entertainment is where's the LGBT stuff because it's in there, it's coming. And Brett McCracken points that out and we do too. And so I think as parents, we have to not have a false sense of security that if we just watched one episode and we didn't see anything, that it's going to be okay. And so we need to keep revisiting things We need to be wise about the fact that whether we like it or not, this agenda is in play. And frankly, I think it it should perhaps motivate us to check out alternatives like Bent Key by The Daily Wire is doing conservatively themed kid shows. Uh, Minnow is a Christian platform. 
um, that is really dedicated to providing alternative content. And so there are alternatives out there. And I think more than ever, we maybe need to be looking to actively engage with those instead. So good and so helpful, Adam, as always. Um, Thanks so much. Um, Have a great weekend. I will do it. Thanks, Carmen. Hey, are you listening on the AM dial right now? Like, I just want you to, like, raise your hand if you're listening on AM radio right now, somewhere in the Faith Radio Network. Um, I I had a note here that said, don't touch that dial. Um, So here's what's going on. Um, Automakers, including BMW, Mazda, Volkswagen, and Tesla, um, have begun removing AM radios as standard equipment from their vehicles. Ford was on the verge of removing them from all new vehicles, but has now backtracked because they got pressure not only from broadcasters like us, um, but um, but Congress as well. So here's what's going on. You know, this, there's this whole push to move toward elect, uh, electric vehicles, but electric motors actually um, make the fuzzy sound of AM stations even fuzzier. So... Um, so these automakers are saying, we're just not putting them in. We're just not putting AM, uh, access into our vehicles. Well, here's the challenge. Um, there's a bipartisan bill co-sponsored, um, by Edward Markey from Massachusetts and Ted Cruz from Texas requiring car manufacturers to continue including AM broadcast radio, um, in new vehicles. Why? Well, because the federal emergency Uh, management agency, FEMA, relies on AM to transmit emergency alerts. And lots of people across the United States of America um, live in places where there, you know, AM is still the, you know, is is, is still the biggest thing going. And so I thought in this 75th, uh, on the 75th anniversary, I can spit out the words, on this 75th anniversary of Faith Radio, or our 75th birthday, however you want to think about it, um, it was worth celebrating that 75 years ago, students and faculty made an investment in the future of what you and I are doing right now. Um, But we also need you to consider making an investment um, in us now so that 75 years from now, however it is that people are listening to Christian media, um, we can here at Faith Radio be in on that. So yes, this is still Faith Radio. This is still radio where we are connecting faith to life. But we are also connecting faith to life um, through all kinds of digital media. You may be listening right now at MyFaithRadio.com or via the Faith Radio app. You may be listening on an FM signal as well. Faith Radio um, is radio, but Faith Radio is also leveraging every kind of new digital technology to press out our programming um, to a world that is now accessing digital media in ways that 75 years ago, Billy Graham could have only dreamed of. Could have only dreamed of. Um, and so celebrate with us our 75 years. You can go to MyFaithRadio.com. There's a place there for you to um, to to join in. Uh, Faith Radio's 75th birthday celebration. You could win one of our 75 birthday boxes. Yep, we're giving away stuff in celebration of our birthday. And I would invite you to um, consider, you know, what what does Faith Radio mean to you? And how would you like to invest in our future, financially invest in our, in our future, so that 75 years from now, um, after we're long gone, 
people will be benefiting from this Christian broadcast media. Let's be praying for the members of Congress as they consider um, bills like this and all their other work and let you and I um, continue to advance the gospel in the time and place that God has ordained for us to live. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. Hey, um, do you consider the world a positive or a negative place? Mm -hmm. How do you live life in the negative world? Aaron Wren joins us next. Aaron Wren is joining us now. Um, His book, which is going to be the subject of our conversation, is Life in the Negative World. You have probably experienced the negative world that we are about to discuss, and we're going to talk about resilience as Christians in the midst of it. Um, Aaron, um, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me on, and congrats on the 75th anniversary of Faith Radio. Right? People are sending us diamonds. I mean, they're not, but maybe they'll think about it now. That's a big deal, 75 years. All right, all right. Um, tell us, introduce us to yourself. Like, um, you know, three things about yourself that you think people would find interesting to know. <laughs> well, number one, I grew up about four miles outside of a, a town of 64 people in southern Indiana. <laughs> and then I spent most of my adult life. Now, see, in- now I already like you. I already yeah, like you. I was, born in Mun- I was born in Muncie. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Mm-hmm. Yes, I live in Indianapolis today. And then I actually, in my adult life, I lived in Chicago and New York City. So I have a foot in both the rural and the urban world. Uh, I was also a consultant. Uh, I've essentially had three careers. One was a consultant. One was a public policy analyst in the think tank world in New York. And now I spend a lot of my time researching sort of culture and the church and especially how it affects men and how it affects uh, uh, conservative evangelicals. So that's... Uh, that's basically me. Of course, I, I just wrote the new book, which is uh, I'm very excited about. Yeah, we're we're thrilled to be talking with you about it today. So if you guys want to connect with Aaron, he is at Aaron Wren, R-E-N-N dot com. Um, let's talk about the future of the evangelical church. And part of this conversation is a look back over the shoulder, you know, sort of like where we've been and how we got here. But I'm going to just let you start by describing um, what you observe as this new and unprecedented era in the United States of America that we as Christians now live in, but we may not actually see it. So you're going to help us look at this negative world. So describe the place we are and then how we got here. My book is about the changes in the way American culture views Christianity. We never had a state church in America, but for most of our history, Uh, A sort of generic Christianity or generic Protestantism was the de facto state religion of America. In the 1950s, for example, half of all adults attended church every Sunday. We had prayer and Bible reading in our schools. We were adding in God we trust to our money, under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. It was a sort of Christian normative society. Starting in the 1960s, that began to unravel. Christianity went into decline uh, in America and Uh, we're still in a period of decline, to be quite honest. And so I divide this period of decline of Christianity in America from roughly 1964 to the present into three eras or worlds that I call the positive, the neutral, and the negative world. And so the positive world is 1964 to 1994. And in that, I want to be clear, this is a period of decline for Christianity. Church attendance is declining, we're having the sexual revolution, et cetera. And yet Christianity is still basically viewed positively in America. 
To be known as a good church-going man makes you seem like an upstanding member of society, and Christian normal moral norms are still the basic moral norms of the country. 1994, we hit a tipping point into what I call the neutral world, which lasted from 1994 to 2014, in which Christianity is no longer seen positively, but it's not really seen negatively yet either. It's just one more lifestyle choice among many in a sort of pluralistic public square. But then in 2014, we had a second tipping point and enter the negative world, where for the first time in the 400-year history of our country, sort of official elite culture now views Christianity negatively or certainly at least skeptically. To be known as a Bible-believing Christian does not help you get a job at Goldman Sachs or Google. Quite the opposite, in fact. Christian moral norms are now expressly repudiated, and in fact, evangelicals and and, uh, serious Christians of all stripes in many ways are now viewed as the leading threat to the new public moral order. And this has been a very dislocating experience for people who are trying to figure out what has happened um, in our country. Um, some folks have described this as like waking up in Babylon, like all of a sudden you're like, where am I? It's very, very disorienting the first time you personally experience it. What you are describing, Aaron, is something that is taking place culture wide, but it's not until we like step into it ourselves when we actually feel it in our own family or in our own place of work or in our own community until we actually feel it. We have a tendency to say it just can't possibly be that bad. Um, I uh, I listen to a lot of radio. That probably won't surprise you. And I listen to a lot of um, secular radio um, on the talk side. And yesterday I heard a person covering the um, the Gallup poll on um, you know people answering the question, "How satisfied do you feel with your life right now?" and 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 where it's headed. And the only people really the only people in America who feel genuinely satisfied um, with their life. You know, they three things are true of them. They are married, they are religiously affiliated, and they are financially stable. And it wasn't the married component nor the financially stable component that had this particular, um, you know, commentator on air, uh, like, baffled. It was the re- religious affiliation part. I mean, she she was like, I don't know anybody that goes to church. I mean, maybe there was a time in history when people went to church, but like, we don't live there anymore. Who are these people? I can't even imagine who these people might be. And I'm thinking to myself, right. wow, she she lives in a context where literally nobody that she knows is like me. I live in a context where a lot of people are like me. So part I think part of why we find ourselves so disoriented is that we tend to live in communities where a lot of people are like us. And so if we are Christians, we actually know and operate in in, in environments where other people are Christian, um, where the rhythms of life look like ours. Um, do you think that's a part of why so many Christians are like so surprised to find themselves living in a world that's actually negative toward toward them and their beliefs? There's a saying, you know, the future is here, but it's not uh, equally distributed. Yeah, culture changes uh, from the center, from places like New York or Los Angeles, and sort of radiates out to the rest of the country. So things that were, you know, true in some of these big cities is now more true in, say, smaller cities like Indianapolis, working its way into the 
suburbs and even, you know, maybe into some of the rural areas. Certainly there are lots of places in America, like where I live, that are still basic and where I grew up, still basically faith friendly. You're not going to get in trouble uh, for being a Christian. You're probably not going to get attacked for that. But even, for example, in the rural part of Indiana where I grew up, we now see that the institutions of society embed different values than they would have in the past. For example, again, in the 1950s, in the public schools, they had prayer and Bible reading. Today, even in rural Indiana, we have you know uh, uh, schools that will say, well, we're not going to tell the parents when the child changes their pronouns or changes their gender. And, you know, the gender ideologies, the race ideologies, for example, are deeply embedded institutionally, even into rural school, public schools and libraries. So despite the uh, preferences maybe of the people who live there, what you see is, again, all of the major institutions of society, the official culture is essentially um, uh, essentially embeds a completely different set of principles than it was before. Um, and so I think one of the, that's one of the reasons I think we see, for example, over the last 20 years, we've seen a, a gradual exit out of public education by a lot of evangelicals and others, of course, in favor of homeschooling, Christian schooling, the classical Christian schools movement, as they now increasingly, although they didn't really say that necessarily articulate this negative world, what they see is, hey, the institutions of society now embed certain beliefs that we don't agree with, and therefore we need to get out of those. And this can be true, again, even in rural areas where you think the schools would be very conservative. They're not. Yeah. Um, I want to talk with you um, in just a moment about the observations you make about the three different models of um, evangelicalism. So as you're listening, um, I want you to think about, um, are you a culture warrior? Are you um, a seeker-sensitive evangelical? Are you a cultural engagement evangelical? And maybe you don't even know what the word evangelical means. So we're going to talk about all of that and what it looks like in the negative world. Life in the negative world is the book. Aaron Wren is the author. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. Receive a daily email featuring a scripture graphic. Sign up for the verse of the day email at myfaithradio.com. We're continuing our conversation with Aaron Wren. The book is Life in the Negative World. Do you feel like the world in which you live is largely positive toward you and your Christian faith or, you know, kind of meh, doesn't really, you know, care one way or another about your Christian faith? Or are you operating in a time and space and place where you feel the heat, like where you actually recognize that you are living as a Christian in the negative world? You can engage with us on the text line 877-933-2484. Aaron, you make observations of um, three different like models of evangelicalism. First of all, who or what is an evangelical? And then what is your kind of breakdown of these three different models? Yeah, well, how to define an evangelical is a source of constant debate. Uh, I, I don't try to come up with a theological definition. I actually take my definition from social science. When they ask people what their religious background is, they actually classify them, if you're a Protestant, into three buckets. You're either mainline, you're from the black Protestant tradition, or you're an evangelical. So essentially, I'm casting a little bit of a wide net. Anyone who's not 
a mainline Protestant or part of the black church tradition falls into the evangelical, um, the evangelical bucket. And of course, there are people who are black who identify as being an evangelical. That's not strictly a, a, a racial category. It's about the particular churches and denominations that make up those traditions. It's very complicated, but that's basically how I do it. And in the book, what I do is um, I, I essentially, you know, overlay this sort of history of America uh, that I had that I just laid out with this history of evangelicalism. And really, evangelicalism essentially filled the gap that was left when mainline Protestantism really went into decline. This church attendance started going down, and the old mainlines really weren't able to adapt to this period of Christian decline. But evangelicals were. They were able to fill that gap. And I identify sort of three different strategies evangelicals came up with to deal with this period of decline. Again, in the positive world, those were culture war and secret sensitivity. And in the neutral world, it was cultural engagement. So culture war is the religious right that we know pioneered by people like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson. The idea here is they saw that things weren't going the right way for Christianity, and they wanted to mobilize politically to fight back, take back the country. The idea of living in a moral majority, right? That's a positive world idea right there. Sort of a second strand was seeker sensitivity, uh, which was pioneered by people like Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Church in suburban Chicago, uh, Rick Warren at Saddleback in Orange County, which saw church decline. And the response was to create a more consumer-friendly church. Let's create a church people actually want to attend. So they ditched things like denominational distinctives, stodgy hymns, choir robes. Uh, you could dress informally, contemporary music, topical therapeutic sermons. And much like the religious right still with us today, this group is still with us today too. It's really the the non-denominational suburban megachurch we all know. And then in the the, two, uh, the 1990s in the neutral world, we saw the emergence of this cultural engagement strategy, which uh, really emerged in big cities. It was sort of a seeker sensitivity for the big cities uh, that wanted to be more culturally engaged and really wanted to take advantage of this pluralistic public square. And instead of fighting with people like the culture warriors, they wanted to have conversations with people and try to uh, win people to Christ through a more kind of winsome articulation uh, of the gospel. And again, this is still with us today. And not everybody uh, fits cleanly into these categories. Not every church fits cleanly into these categories. But these do represent sort of three impulses uh, and sort of sort of three groups of people, if you will. As we've entered the negative world, though, there has not really been a negative world strategy that has been uh, developed. So what has happened is that as the negative world pressures have really come to bear on these groups, we've seen a lot of stress. You know, a lot of pastors under stress. There's a lot of churches are under stress. We've seen some kind of what you might call realignment and a lot of intra-evangelical conflict. Essentially, the culture war has moved uh, from kind of the world to internally to the church. So you see tons and tons of dissension and division over things like Donald Trump or wokeness or COVID that have really sort of been tearing evangelicalism up a little bit, tearing many churches up. Maybe not everybody's experienced it, but a lot of people have. And so my argument is, hey, we got to take a step back, think about this negative world that we're in, think about this new era, and just in the way that people made these uh, these uh, adaptations in the 70s and the 90s and the 80s, we need to think about how do we respond to this in a way that's authentic to our time, rather than just fighting with each other and throwing rocks at each other. Okay, so now put on your consultant hat 
and help us see that. Um, what is the strategy for evangelicals in the negative world? Well, that's about three-fourths of the book, and we only have like two minutes, so <laughs> I, I can't necessarily go go through it all. But like one one principle I'd say is, you know, when you're a moral minority, we need to, to think more like a minority, which means we need to be more uh, stewarding of the strength of our own community. I think there's been this assumption that we've got it, uh, we've got it all, and all we need to do is reach the lost. And reaching the lost is important, but I think in a lot of ways, we need to make sure our own churches are strong, we're discipled, we're transmitting uh, the faith to our children so that we have a base from which to do evangelism and to invite people in. I think the education example I gave earlier is the perfect example of saying, hey, we can't rely on those mainstream institutions anymore. We have to start taking care of our own business. And that doesn't have to mean hating anybody else. It's just like, look, if we want to pass on our values to our kids, we can't rely on these public institutions to do it. We need our own institutions. That's so good. That's so good. Um, you talk about the importance of resilience. That's a word I really like. Yeah. Um, let's um, let's do this. What gives you hope? Aaron Wren, what gives you hope? Where is there cause for optimism for Christians in this uh, in this new world? Well, one, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. I mean, think about all the crazy things that happened just in the last few years. Who thought Donald Trump would be president? Who thought we'd have a pandemic that upended the country? Who thought Russia would invade Ukraine? Things happen. We've had great awakenings in the past. And, uh, you know, the pendulum, there is no just story arc of history that goes just one direction from that sort of secular perspective. Um, and so I think that there's there's plenty of op reason to be optimism. The church in America is not going out of business, but we're certainly looking at a long period of time for any sort of cultural transformation. Yeah, taking the long view is really, really important. Um, there's a conversation in here about the Great Commission. It is still the Great Commission, even in the negative world. So how are you as a Christian going to live life in the negative world as a resilient Christian, a person of joy and vibrant faith on co-mission with Christ, carrying out the Great Commission in this day and time? Because this is the time that God has ordained that we should live. And so for such a time as this, um, God has entrusted the gospel to us. So um, yeah, let's get out there and do it. Life in the Negative World is the book, Aaron Wren. You can connect with him at AaronWren.com. I'm happy to send you that direct link um, to Aaron as well on the text line. Aaron, what a joy. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, hey, one little um, alert here as you go out there into the world that God so loves. You're going to encounter a lot of people today for whom um, this is New Year's Day, right? Hundreds of millions of people around the world um, are experiencing New Year. Yep, that's right. It is the year of the dragon in the Chinese zodiac. There's an opportunity there for you to, um, you know, you to engage with folks about why they believe what they believe, you know, what they believe and why they believe it, and maybe enter into a conversation about what you believe and why you believe it. This is the year of the Lord. Make it so. This is the day of the Lord. Make it so. This is the hour of the Lord. Make it so. This is the moment of the Lord. Make it so. Indeed, we are His. Um, and so let's manifest that, um, you know, in our conversations today. Let's be thinking about what we're thinking about. Let's allow Christ to take every thought captive. Let's think the thoughts of Christ. And then let's go out there and be shiny, doing all the good that God has prepared in advance for us to do. 
um, by the power of his spirit at work within and among us. Have a great weekend and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.